Welcome again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We're always very pleased when you join us. And so is Alan Dempsey. He's our engineer, gets us on the air. Uh, Andrew Herdliska does the producing. And uh, Andrew has produced for us Dr. James Hudnett Boimler. He's in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. He is a distinguished professor of American religious history at Vanderbilt University. And his new book is out, Strangers and Friends at the Welcome Table, Contemporary Christianities in the American South. Jim, welcome to Orlando. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's a beautiful spring day up here. Well, that's good to hear. Love Nashville. Uh, tell By the way, before we dive into your book, uh, explain to us uh, the growth, uh, the expansion that you're seeing in Nashville. What's going on? Uh, well, Nashville, like uh, like Austin, Texas, is a mid-sized city that uh, combines uh, culture and business and a pleasant climate and more and more people keep wanting to come every year, particularly young people, which is nice to see. Yes. And where are they all staying in those new high-rises they're building? Uh, yeah, the young ones are staying anywhere they can. Uh, they particularly like east of the river in East Nashville and some of the older uh, communities built right after uh, World War II. Uh, and, and if they make it big and work for Amazon or some other uh, thing like that, they uh, can go downtown in the Gulch area. Otherwise, the Gulch and, and uh, South Broadway are kind of an entertainment and uh, uh, eating district. Jim, how do you describe beautiful Vanderbilt University to one who's never been there on your campus? Well, we are uh, w- one of the very few uh, maybe the only university that's also a uh, nationally registered arboretum. Really? We've got be- beautiful buildings, but you can't see all of them for the dogwoods and the magnolias and the pleasant paths. And uh, anytime I get a little bit, uh, I used to be dean of, of the Divinity School, and when there was a personnel problem or something like that, I'd go take a walk in uh, God's nature and start feeling much, much better. Uh, in a matter of minutes. Yeah, that's great to hear. So what's your new book about? What's the story here? So uh, the story here is that uh, in the American South, uh, which uh, includes probably down to uh, uh, (laughs) I-4, crossover point, right, for your listeners, between Southern culture and Southern Florida, and uh, it's very clear that uh, the Panhandle and, and Jacksonville are more part of the South, and there's this transition zone, um, uh, as, as you all well know. But uh, the book is about the changing religious culture of, of the Southern United States uh, in the post-air conditioning era, if you will. Mm. Uh, for, for a long time, and still in a kind of stereotyped way, Southern Christianity, Southern religion for that matter, was Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Church of Christ, more or less in that order, and white Christians and black Christians in that order. Uh, The thing that's happened over the last 50 years or so is that uh, a lot of people, we were talking about Nashville, a lot of people from other places have moved into the South, not just from the United States, but um, internationally uh, to some of our bigger cities. And uh, with them uh, have come a lot of other kinds of Christianity, so much so uh, that a scholar can recognize them as, as Christianity. But I use the word Christianities in the title uh, because they're almost different enough from the uh, liberal Christian, liberal mainline Christians to very conservative Christians on on the other end, end Catholic, uh, Hispanic uh, Christians, that it's almost like different forms 
of the same religion. You mentioned and that makes it it Jim, makes it interesting. Jim, I live in one of the most interesting places a, an American religious historian could uh, live. Why? Why do you say that? Well, because the the South has uh, so many so many passionate uh, Christians, so many uh, interesting uh, people who are living and articulating. Uh, their faith in uh, disparate, different ways uh, that uh, I'm just amazed. You know, when I go uh, church to church, as I went out in this in this book, my wife and I traveled for about a year mm-hmm. and uh, saw people who were who were um, cleaning up after Katrina. Uh, and, you know, spending their vacation time helping other people rebuild their lives. Uh, that's part of the story in the South. It's, it's also sometimes very political in, in, uh, in the religious world. Uh, and you got somebody like Roy Moore, uh, who, who loves the Constitution and the Ten Commandments equally. And you've got somebody like William Barber, in North Carolina, uh, who is all about uh, Christians seeking justice. So, interesting stuff. My guest is Dr. James Hudson Boimler. He's in Nashville. Uh, We are talking about his book, Strangers and Friends at the Welcome Table. A little while back, uh, Jim, you mentioned air conditioning as as a factor here. Can you expand on that? What did you mean? Sure. So, so the South was uh, was predominantly an agrarian uh, and and somewhat poor uh, community from after the Civil War, when its economic way of life was was broken uh, broken up, and uh, all the way through uh, the New Deal, which. Uh, uh, tried to help out with uh, public works programs and what have you. Uh, but what really put the South back on its feet was the possibility of uh, being comfortable year-round, uh, not having to go into a sort of uh, slower uh, mode in the summer with, uh, with fan, house fans. I used to live in Decatur, Georgia, we had a big old house fan uh, that was, you know, from from the older time that took off like an airplane, and uh, it didn't fully didn't fully cool, but it was better than being outside in 104 degrees. Oh, I'm chuckling, Jim, because I remember the the same device. We didn't have air conditioning when I was growing up, and uh, uh, those, those exhaust fans that would. Yeah, pull the air, and you did. You did feel kind of a breeze, uh, but you slept. Uh, well, you didn't have sheets. You just slept uh, as best you could. Uh, and you got up early in the morning <laughs> before the heat hit you. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 great. Great memory. Uh, you mentioned a minute ago uh, Roy Moore. Uh, tell us more about him. Well. Uh... So Roy Moore uh, is is an example of a kind of uh, Christian and political leader who fuses uh, what he uh, did as a judge with uh, a strongly moral sense of uh, right and and wrong, uh, even if. Uh, even if the Supreme Court said uh, you can't do that, that breaks um, that breaks the separation of of church and state in terms of your judicial duties. Uh, he's interesting uh, from the standpoint of uh, uh, to me uh, because he's sort of like Thomas More, you know, the English uh, person who stood up to. Uh, in Henry VIII, 
my guest, we got to take a break here. Uh, Dr. Uh, James Hudden at Boimler, uh, his book, and it's an interesting one uh, that he's talking about, Strangers and Friends at the Welcome Table. Uh, we'll be back with uh, Dr. Jim right after these messages here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. We'll be right back. Uh, Dr. James Hudden at Boimler is our guest. We're talking about his book, Strangers and Friends at the Welcome Table. Jim, before we broke away there pretty suddenly, you were uh, uh, telling us more about Roy Moore. Can you finish that for us? Sure. Uh, Roy Moore is interesting as as a what no matter what you uh, think of his uh, of his politics uh, because of his uh, representing uh, someone who's all in on uh, his judicial um, uh, life and his life as a Christian. And I find that there are lots of those kinds of exemplary individuals here in the South who aren't always understood by people outside the South. Um, And I would juxtapose him with uh, uh, black church leaders who, you know, Get out the vote uh, because it's uh, in places like Georgia because it's really important to them to fuse how you believe and how you act in the world. Uh, so they might be on opposite sides of an issue, but they're uh, all in on believing that Christianity ought to make a difference in how you conduct yourself. Tell us more about. Tell us more about William Barber. You mentioned him a minute ago. Sure. Uh, William Barber uh, started up Moral Mondays. Uh, now, goodness, uh, now more about 10 years ago in North Carolina, uh, because in North Carolina, uh, he believed that the um, when the Republicans finally, for the first time since Reconstruction, uh, got all three levers of power in North Carolina, the governor's office, the House, and the Senate, uh, some of their policies seem towards poor people, uh, towards the sick, uh, seemed like um, anti-Christian almost, in the sense of uh, Matthew 25 tells us that we shall be judged by uh, how we care for the hungry, those in prison, those uh, those who are uh, poor, and and what have you, just as Jesus is, and He used this as the basis for gathering together a uh, multi-religious, uh, moral uh, crusade, if you will. Uh, the biggest one, in fact, anywhere in the country premised on Christian grounds uh, since Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership uh, Conference. And, you know, every, everything in politics is a compromise, but he did succeed in uh, changing some of the laws back in the direction of um, compassion uh, through the vehicles of of state institutions uh, as a Christian. Also, a bunch of people who weren't Christian, who were Jews and, and uh, non-believers are sort of on the fence, showed up and didn't mind that he preached sermons straight out of the New Testament and the uh, Old Testament prophets mm-hmm. as part of his public leadership. Which again, it's fascinating. Jim, uh, what did your years uh, in study at Princeton University mean to you? Oh, they they meant uh, they meant everything. I, I spent my time, part of my time, over in the history department, and part of my time in uh, the religion department, uh, learning about ethics and learning about American religious history with. 
uh, Albert Robito and, and John Wilson, my uh, my principal professors, and I had uh, just wonderful conversation partners and the other students um, who who shaped me into the kind of uh, professor I try to be for my students. That is, let's have a, I'm not the only expert here, let's have a conversation about what you've discovered, what you think, and and uh, what you'd like to know more about. Uh, Jim, let's go back uh, to your time uh, uh, as the dean uh, at Vanderbilt in this whole area of um, religious history and training. And so you've got a, a new class that arrives in the fall. I guess they're anywhere from, what, 22 to 32 or something like that, men and women. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's probably our, our, uh, our interstate in terms of ages. Uh, tell me how you go about getting them prepared for a life of, of Christ, full-time Christian duty or service, I guess. Uh, just walk us through what their years are, are going to be like with, under your leadership. Well, under my leadership and under uh, uh, our my colleague, our dean's uh, yes. leadership, it's, it's the same way. And it's, it's often the same from... Uh, all the seminaries across the uh, uh, United States and, and Canada, sort of our, there is a way of, of doing things. And it would be a lot of scripture study, uh, a, a lot of uh, history uh, and theology and ethics. And it would also have uh, and pastoral care and how to preach uh, all of there are courses on all of those things, and there are electives on all of those things, uh, and requirements uh, and ch- choices. I think the thing that actually makes our students able to serve others most is something called field education, and that's where they stop being a student and are a junior minister, if you will, in some uh, community of faith, and suddenly uh, it's not a professor asking them on a test something about, like we said before, Pat Matthew twenty-five, but it's uh, that it's a layperson in the congregation who's asking, "Does this mean that?" And they're kind of put on the spot and enabled to lead. It might be with youth going through some confirmation class. It might be an elderly person who's worried about where will she meet uh, her husband again in heaven. Uh, those are tough questions for anybody. Uh, they're tougher questions when you're 25 years old. And, and suddenly the switch goes on and they realize that what, they've been learning is actually uh, food to the distressed mm-hmm. in, a, in a ministry setting. How do you feel, uh, Jim, the average young person feels called into ministry? What, what, what generally has happened in their life? Uh, to to get them uh, to Vanderbilt or to Dallas Seminary, uh, what took place? Yeah, or or, or to Wake Forest uh, Divinity yeah. School. Uh, yes, yes, your old stomping ground. That's right. Uh, what ha- what typic- what has usually happened is is one of two things. Uh, the the leading things that get people here are they have been influenced by a fine minister. Mm-hmm. You know, they were depressed as a youth, and, and somebody helped turn their life around. And, and they began to realize, wow, that, uh, that person carries a power that's not all, all their own. The other place that, that we get students who become... Uh, converted to doing something more uh, is often an influential professor. They learn things in a college class 
about, say, the New Testament, uh, Pat, that they uh, had never learned in church, and they want to learn more. Those are the two biggest, and I'd say the other thing that often leads people on the path to divinity school is uh, they've been part of a mission service or a year-long program of of service, uh, and they just can't get enough of it. Mm. They have to make it part of their their life's work. Dr. Jim Hudnett Boimler is our guest, and uh, his book uh, that we've been talking about is very, very interesting. As as Jim has really become a a, a student of uh, the Christian South, and uh, what do you see in the future as far as Christianity in the South is concerned, Jim? Any any trends you're seeing? Well, uh, my Pat, my friend uh, and and colleague uh, retired from uh, Duke Divinity School. Uh, Oh, uh, Grant Wacker always liked to talk about the uh, uh, the southernization of the United States and the Americanization of the South. Uh, that that uh, so one thing that's that's happened that we can see has happened over the last hundred years is that uh, the religions that were strongest in the South have gone to other places, like, you know, Pentecostals and Baptists and Church of Christ in Southern California. Uh, There's been a a Church of God in Christ, uh, same story. There's also been a kind of uh, homogenization of of, uh, the South um, as new people have come in and they've brought uh, uh, let's say Midwestern or Pennsylvania Lutheranism to Atlanta, mm-hmm. uh, or uh, and so forth. So one thing I see in the future is more of that long-term process working its way out. Another thing I, I see, and I frankly, Pat, lament uh, is that. Younger generations um, are not uh, displaying as much religious uh, adherence to churches uh, or synagogues or mosques, for that matter, as earlier generations. And I wonder uh, what it means for our future to have uh, successively less uh, religiously observant um, generations in America. Do you, Jim, uh, see the, the, the Catholic Church uh, growing and expanding in the Southeast? Oh, yes. Uh, you know, we, we uh, the entire American Catholic Church would be on a sort of downward uh, population glide if it were just left uh, to white Catholics who who have who are who have shrunk in terms of adherence and participation a lot like mainline Protestants they haven't they don't have as many kids and and uh, they don't go as often as they used to go and so forth but the uh, but the influx of Hispanics from you know, 22 different uh, countries in Latin America uh, have really uh, brought the Catholic Church up from a tiny minority uh, to, to a fairly large presence, and not just in places like uh, Miami, but also uh, in places like Raleigh, North Carolina, mm. uh, which which two generations ago was about the most Protestant place on earth. Very interesting, uh, Doctor James Hudnett Boimler. I'm I'm fascinated with your last name, Jim. There's got to be a story here, doesn't there? 
Yeah, well, my, my wife was uh, was the Hudnut, uh, which is a Norman name, like William the Conqueror and all that. And uh, Boimler is is a German name, my name, and we put them together uh, uh, so that when we're uh, we were in, uh, my wife was in ministry in New York, and all of our uh, friends, where the woman kept her own name, uh, kept running into problems where the hospital wouldn't let them uh, see their kids in the emergency room after an accident. So we decided we had to have just one name, and we couldn't settle on one of those two names. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, Dr. James Hudnett Boimler. Uh, and the book is fascinating. I'm glad we had a chance to uh, dive into Strangers and Friends at the Welcome Table, Contemporary Christianities in the American South. We've got more, folks, here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay with us. Uh, you're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5 The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. Dr. James Hudnett Boimler, our guest in that first segment from Nashville, Tennessee. Well, we go from Nashville to San Clemente, California, and we found Chris Sunkson there, founder of Church Boom, author of Indispensable Church, Powerful Ways to Flood Your Community with Love. Chris, welcome. How are you? How you doing? I'm doing good today. Thank you so much for having me on the show, man. It's an honor. Thank you, sir. Why did you write the book? What What's the story? Uh, you know, uh, well, the short version is uh, I'm a pastor as well. We have uh, 13 campuses and uh, the founding pastor. And short version is several years ago, um, I was presented with the very worn out question by uh, people, <laughs> what would what would uh, what would happen if your church closed? Would anybody miss it? Mm. And I've heard that I've heard that a million times in the ministry world. But I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago, it kind of struck me as, well, wait a minute, stop and think about it. Like, what, you know, instead of just looking at it as a worn out question, uh, you know, is it true? And I thought, you know, it is true. I don't think anybody cares uh, outside of people that go to our church. What would the city care? And so we just began to, uh, through the help of some incredible staff members, began to think about ways that we could touch the community beyond just, hey, we feed the homeless, which is great, but what could we do to really, you know, three or four or five times a year, take a weekend and just love the community like crazy? And um, and that's where the book kind of was birthed out of over the last five, six years, seven years of just really going hard after how do we love this community that all the different communities that we're involved with and how do we do it in a way that to get to a point where if we were to shut down or we were even talking about it, maybe the mayor or the city council would be like, please don't shut down. You guys do too much. You provide too much for our community. Uh, and that's what we've been fighting to get to. And that's what this book is all about. And what we've been teaching pastors across the nation. Your first chapter is called, can you imagine with a question mark? Uh, what, what, yeah. are, what what are you writing here? Um, we talk about, um, we just try to paint a picture and a vision um, for the reader, for the pastor, for the leader, to just imagine what it would be like if you had a church that people, besides the people that went there, um, would actually care if it got shut down, to paint the vision of what it would be like to be in really true partnership with the mayor, the city councilman, and the superintendent of schools. You know, could you imagine that uh, what it would be like for your entire church to be engaged with the community, uh, to be giving towards it, to be serving in that way? Um, you know, we, we talked about, can you imagine, you know, the statement of separation church and state? Well, if a separation means that there's a gap, could you imagine if we filled in the gap? And uh, so it's just really painting a picture of what it could be like and what you could do both individually in your small group uh, as a church, you know, what could you actually do? And uh, what's great is, uh, flip side of that is you've seen so much, you've seen very, very large churches do this uh, as we've begun to kind of spread this across the nation. Um, but we've also seen small churches that have all, all of a sudden become a force to reckon with in the city. The city is, you know, 
thinking, man, if this little church of 100 leaves, we're in a lot of trouble. And that's what we're trying to paint the picture. Can you imagine being that church? Love is a verb. That's your next topic. Tell us about it. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the statement itself gives away the entire chapter. Love isn't an adjective. It's a verb. Um, it is not a person, place, or thing. It is, it's, an, it's an action. Uh, a verb, and so really just trying to move people towards the idea of, hey, if we're going to really love people, you know, beloved, let us love one another, you know, <laughs> if we're going to shine the love of God, if we're going to actually care and love people, um, that means there's going to have to be some action to it. It can't just be, I love God and I love people, you know, that seems to be the big statement in churches, love God, love people, you know, we use it, but Man, if we're going to love people, it means there's going to have to be some action involved in it. It's going to have to have the, you know, the good Samaritan feel. And it's not just, and again, uh, it's not just um, actions of, hey, let's, uh, feeding the down and out or taking care of the down and out. It's just, you know, it's anything. It's the superintendent of school saying, man, our teacher's lounge is a mess and or our basketball court's a mess or whatever. It's like, well, let's see if we can figure that out together. Uh, and just simple, practical, practical ways of love. Love is definitely a verb, and it needs to be. Jesus expressed it in the way that he died on the cross. We express it by the way that we love people in our community and, and care for the community. And it can't just be words. It has to be action. Chris Sunkskin is the author of Indispensable Church. He's our guest. My Neighbor, uh, you write in Chapter 3, and uh, what are you writing? Well, you know, um, it's about, you know, love your neighbor, love thy neighbor, as as, as we're taught in Scripture, um, and the neighbor being... Um, the neighbor, the neighbor being anybody. In other words, if you're in a very wealthy area or you're in a very poor area, the natural tendency of a, of a person is to think, okay, well, the poor need us. Well, no, no, no. Everybody needs us. <laughs> Love thy neighbor. You know, the rich guy may have all the money, and that may not be the problem, but, is, but he's still hurting. He's still empty. He's still going through something. Uh, so it really doesn't matter where you're at. You don't need to leave your community to go into another part of the state 20 miles away to do some outreach. You can find things in your own community, a need that is missing, uh, a gap that is there, and meet it. It doesn't matter who you're, uh, it doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter the, uh, the wealth that you've got. Everybody has needs. Every community has needs. Um, and everybody needs to be signed some love through action. And so love that neighbor is simply, you don't need to go to some other community. It's, it's right there. It's the school you're at. It's the first responders. It's the fire. It's the, it's the chief of police. It's the superintendent of schools. Uh, it's the house. It's the facility down the street that cares for children with challenges. It's all of that. That's how we learn to love the neighbor. The neighbor is right here in our own backyard. Chris, you then move from my neighbor to why is it so hard? Uh, what, are you, what are you telling yeah. us there? Yeah, you know, I don't. I, I think that uh, on why it's so hard, um, I, you know, I, I think for people, uh, there's several reasons uh, that, that are addressed in that chapter and what we talk about a little bit. Um, we tend to think that's for other people, not for us. Uh, I give in the offering or I'm, I'm one of the biggest givers in the church or whatever, so it's really not for me. Um, so maybe we think that maybe we, it's hard because we are naturally bent towards self, self-centeredness. Uh, and so we don't really think about other people or think of things in that way. Um, you know, at Christmas time, the guy at the stoplight, we give him $5 and that kind of eases our conscience, but, but, um, that's really not what we're going after here, you know? So I think it's hard because when we talk about that and we address it, it's hard because of self-centeredness. It's hard because we think, hey, that's for someone else. That's not for me. Uh, it's hard because maybe we think we don't know where to start. Uh, what do we do? Uh, and so it becomes difficult for many reasons for people. And it's not as easy. It sounds really great. Hey, just love the community. That sounds like a really neat statement. And God only knows how many shirts are out there that say, be kind, love thy name, love people, you know, show love, love first, you know, and all these little, everybody's got these great shirts, but it's like, well, uh, that sounds great, but 
it's a lot harder than we think because of our natural bent towards self-centeredness or it's someone else's responsibility or whatever may be coming into our mind. Now I want you to talk about uh, the call. What's that mean? Yeah, in that chapter we talk about, you know, just kind of a carryover of the prior chapter of the call, that we all have it. No one's excluded from it. You know, I think that people sometimes look at what God calls us to do and then puts their personality to it. In other words, like it says, go out into all the world and share the gospel. Well, it didn't say go out into all the world. If you're if you're an extrovert, go out into all the world. But if you're an introvert, you're off the hook. There's no off the hook um, of what we're talking about here in Love Thy Neighbor. There's no off the hook. Uh, it's not um, it's not because hey, I'm you know I'm introvert or I'm extrovert or I'm busy or I'm not busy or whatever it may be. The calling is to all of us. The the commission to love people is to all of us. It's not. It's not excluded based on um, our personality or our, our, you know, our natural strengths or weaknesses. I mean, I get all that. I really do. And I understand that God wired us all different. But there are just some things that we can't water down or we can't, man, maybe that's not the right phrase, not water down, but we can't excuse away just because it doesn't fit into our natural personality. There's a way to love people. There's a way for you to do it inside of the way that you are designed and the way that you are uniquely created. And God uniquely created that that way and still commissioned you. So we have to find that way. We can't excuse our way out of it. So the call is for everybody. Now, uh, Chris, explain to us, start small, but start exclamation point. Yeah, the... uh, Start small is the, um, you know, again, I think the chapter gives away, you start somewhere. So for the church, uh, for instance, uh, example, we we did 180 projects uh, in 2019. We averaged about 150 to 200 uh, neighborhood projects, you know, things that we do. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. but, um, But we didn't start that way. We started at one of our campuses on a serve Saturday with one project. And then a couple months later, we did another serve Saturday with two projects and then just turned it into, okay, four times a year, we do a, we do what we call a love where you live week or all week long. We've got all these projects that people are involved with throughout each campus. And so that, it, it, the point is that you just, you, you got to start small, you know, and that's okay. Your church is a hundred people, it's 50 people, or, you know, it's like, Hey, my pastor's really not into this, but me and my small group is, there's six of us here. Okay. Well, what can we do? You can't do everything, but you do something. Uh, and so you find something to do, you know, and you find a way to serve. You find a need in the community. It doesn't have to be ongoing. It doesn't have to be every week. It doesn't even have to be every month. But, you know, once every two or three months, you have a serve Saturday, and you just figure out some way to serve the community. And it might start with one little project of painting a hallway at a at a elementary school that got graffitied. Okay, well, you started somewhere. Uh, but you started, and that's the whole thing. I, I, I don't think it's a matter of doing everything. It's just a matter of doing something. How about this? Start where you are. Use what you have. Yep. Do what you can. Yep, that's right. I think, that's that, right. I think that's, right. that, that's what you're teaching us. Chris, Chris Sonskin is with us from San Clemente, California. Indispensable Church. Uh, make it happen is topic number seven. Uh, fill us in, please, Chris. Yeah, it's a, I would call that more of a motivational chapter of, you know, just people in life that have made a difference, um, people of interest that have made a difference. For instance, you know, it mentions in there, Mother Teresa, well, she didn't even move to Calcutta until she was 40. Mm. Uh, and, you know, until she was 40. So people are like, well, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm already 45 years old. Yeah, Mother Teresa didn't move to Calcutta until she was 40, which tells us, and she became the household name, and tells us that, you know, it doesn't matter how young you are or how old you are. You know, people always say that. Well, you know, I'm too young, you know, uh, to really do anything. Well, I'm a little too old. That's for younger people. Like, okay, well, if you're too young and you're too old, then who's the right person? You're the right person. You're 80 or you're 15. You're the right person to do something to make it happen uh, and to uh, uh, get out there, make it happen, make a difference, do something. 
you can't sit around and well, my my pastor doesn't, you know, we, he doesn't want to do anything, or my small group doesn't want to. Okay, then you do something. You know, it, it's it's the idea that you personally and and you start somewhere. Mother Teresa just moved to Calcutta and started feeding some kids, and that's all it started off as. It didn't start into this big movement. It was just I'm just going to go there and feed a few kids and see what happens, and and it just turned into this. You know, obviously a household name, but. I think that's where you start, you know? So instead of, hey, my pastor or, you know, the church or my small group or my buddies don't want to do it or my friends, my pals are not into it, okay, well, then you do it. So start somewhere. And a movement all a movement always starts with one person. Uh, and we'll talk about that in another chapter, but that's, uh, that's what it really is all about. It's all about just, hey, you know, Instead of coming up with all the reasons of why not, come up with the reasons why and go and do it. My guest, and boy, he's a good one. Uh, we got more with Chris Sonskin. Stay with us. Indispensable Church, the name of his book. When we come back, woven into the fabric will be uh, the next topic. And then after we finish with that topic, Chris will talk to us about Create a Movement. You're listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, a word in Orlando. Uh, We'll be right back. Chris Sonskin is with us from San Clemente, California, author of Indispensable Church. And as uh, we mentioned, woven into the fabric is the next topic for you, Chris. Tell us about it. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I will. And uh, if I could back up just a little bit, I think it's good also to mention that in chapters six and seven and eight, uh, which is we're talking about number eight right now, is it gets really practical. Uh, We start talking about list of things. We give a whole list of things. Matter of fact, if you go to lovewhereyoulive.church, you can get a whole uh, ton of different ideas. And we list those. We start diving into those towards the end of the book. So we build the argument at the beginning of the book in chapters six, seven, eight. Um, we start diving into the practical things, um, prom dresses for girls in need. I mean, we've done that. We gave out 180 prom dresses in one, in one morning, um, uh, redoing the teacher's lounge with new paint, new refrigerator, new flooring, and just bless the teachers of a local school, a donut drop every Monday at all your elementary schools. Like there's just a ton of ideas listed in the book that anybody can do at any level. And again, on the site where you live church, there's even more ideas. You can get some more ideas there. Uh, but as we move into chapter eight, as you're mentioning, woven into the fabric, uh, it starts talking about creating that uh, culture and woven into the fabric of the culture of the church and the culture of who you are, the DNA of who you are. So it, it kind of touches on that idea of it becoming more woven into just who you are, that it's it's kind of like the idea that love isn't something you do, it's just who you are. It's the same thing with, we always hear about, you know, the, the with, with God, we always say that, or at least I hear pastors say it all the time, I say it all the time, that, that um, you know, God is, God is, love is not something God does, it's something He is. It, 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 love for Him is not an action, or a, it's just who He is, it's what He's made up of. It's just that it's the fabric of who he is. It's the, it's the DNA of who he is. And it really uh, talks quite a bit about moving into that type of fabric where it's like, God, that's, that's who we need to be. We just need to, it needs to not be, it needs to get to a point. Yes, we keep doing safe Saturdays and love where you live week. And we do that three or four times a year, but we want it to be woven into just who we are. Uh, it's not just every four Saturdays out of the year. It's just who we are. Uh, and we just find out how to love. I mean, again, every T-shirt and every young, hip person that's, you know, uh, with a new album out or, you know, Hollywood or whatever, we live in Southern California, so we see that a lot. It's like, oh, be kind, be loved, be this, be that. Well, clearly nobody's listening uh, because we have all sorts of problems. But what we need to do is just wove it into our fabric, and over time that will happen. So it just starts becoming who we are. And if it starts becoming who we are, maybe the result will be it'll become who other people are. And so that's what it means to roll it into the fabric. It means to let it become who you are. Chris, a minute ago, you made a statement, a movement always starts with one person. Uh, Can you expand on that? Yeah, 
Yeah, we talk a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, again, and, and I know we talk a little bit about that in uh, chapter nine and final chapter. But yeah, if you look at if you look at a, a movement, even if it isn't a social humanitarian type movement, just a movement. Uh, Apple products is a movement. Twenty years ago, it was one thing. Today, you know, when they come out with a new iPhone, whatever. You know, thousands and thousands of people stand in line. If you own an iPhone and everybody else and someone else has got an Android, you kind of laugh at them. You know, you joke around with them if you're in the iPhone club because it's this sort of movement that got created, which is, again, not a Christian, you know, nonprofit or anything like that idea. It's just there's just a movement that happens, you know, and, and it always starts with someone, you know, like I said, Mother Teresa started a movement. Martin Luther King Jr. started a movement. Um, there's just people that can come along and start a movement and the movement may not, you know, make you a household name or put you on some sort of talk show, but you know, you can do something. Uh, and it does catch on. You know, when you begin to show love in a community and you begin to do the things that maybe other people are not doing, um, then people start to pay attention to that. And the next thing you know, there's four people, eight people, 12 people. Convoy of Hope, which I, I'm a partner with, um, feeds almost 400,000 children a day in, in 11 countries. Hal Donaldson is the founder and one of my close friends. I love him very much. And he, you know, 25 years ago, he just started in a park and he would take a couple grocery bags and give them out to people at the park on a Saturday. And then that turned into a little bit more. And then that turned in a few more people got involved with him. And then a few more people got involved with him. And now fast forward, it's a huge organization, a couple hundred employees and feeding 400,000 children in 11 countries. But it started with a bag of groceries in a park. And that's what it means to start a movement. You start somewhere. Uh, and you just start creating and start building up somewhere. And if I may add one more thing that to all pastors out there uh, that are maybe listening to this are church leaders, pastors, you know, I, I, one thing I always say is that, you know, you can't, um, you know, you, everybody's trying to, you know, the, the cool church, like to have the cement floor and the screens and all that, we have all that in our campuses and we've got the cool look and the great vibe and all that, but so does everybody. Like, you're not going to stand out anymore because your music any better. You're not going to stand out anymore because you have two screens or three screens rather than two, or you've got cement floors, or, you know, you got a cool-looking worship leader. Like, that's just, you know, everybody's doing that. But I'll tell you how you stand out. Love people. Because I mean, love people. Love the community. Find the need and fill it. Because churches and people aren't doing that. You want to stand out as a church pastor? Just find the need and fill it. Because... Churches aren't doing that, and people aren't doing that, not in the way that it should be done and not in the way that it could be done. So that's what we're talking about in creating a movement. It starts with one person, and it creates a movement, and it starts to spread. Um, Chris Sunkson is our guest. Um, using indispensable church in small groups and classes. That's a segment at the back of the book. Uh, wh- why is that included in the book, Chris? Oh, well, um, again, um, the idea of this book or the, the reason that we uh, actually at the end of every chapter, there are questions. And then towards the end, it talks about how to use it in a small group. So what we really uh, created it for is to actually become a study in itself for the small groups. So take a small group of six people, seven people, they all buy the book, they read the chapter, they come together in their small group and they go through the questions. Then they read the next chapter, come together in a small group, then they go through the questions. So, it, it is sure. It also doubles up as a small group curriculum for pastors and for small group leaders, so that not only can we start the movement in our church, but we can go through this book and the material together and really learn what it means to flood your uh, community with love. What's next for you, Chris? Do you have another book uh, coming along or another project in addition to your preaching and all? Yeah. Well, we've we have. Uh, like I said, we've got. Southhills.org is our, our campuses, and then we've got a coaching organization, churchboom.org, so we just coach churches and pastors across the nation. Um, one of the uh, next projects we have, two big projects, one, we're launching a brand-new campus, our 13th campus, actually, in a couple weeks. And the other big project is actually I just finished up the manuscript for my next book, which won't be out till 2022. Um, and so the publishers aren't putting it out then and the agents and all that, but it's called Leader Drift and six subtle behaviors that tear teams apart. So it's really all about 
uh, leadership and all about uh, creating a team of unity and alignment. So that's kind of the next big project coming down the pipe. That's uh, Boy, that's right up my alley. Tell me the title, the working title again. Leader Drift. One word, Leader Drift. And the subtitle is Six Subtle Behaviors That Tear Teams Apart. So what does what does leader drift mean? What's that? Uh, what's that mean? Yeah, well, the book is really based on the idea of um, here's what the book is based on. In the sixty second version, it means this: that when the enemy takes a run at your church, he won't do it to those who attend it. He'll do it to those who lead it. And the idea is here's some subtle behaviors that pastor leaders. When you start seeing these behaviors in your staff or in an individual or in a leader or Whatever, if you see these behaviors, that's a subtle behavior that if you don't take care of it, it's ultimately going to tear the uh, church apart uh, and tear the team apart. And so it's all about leader drift, and it starts off with Mm. Moses. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. (laughs) He comes back, and the people build a calf. So it's a crazy thing. He, they all follow God. They all follow Moses. They're all like, you know, you're our pastor. You're our leader. God, we love you. You're awesome. Moses says, I'll be back in a little while. I got to go up to this mountain and pray. He goes up there. Six weeks later, six weeks later, he comes back, and they turn their back on him. They turn their back on God, and they build a golden cap. Italy. My guest has been Chris Sunkson, author of Indispensable Church. We've got a wrap-up right after this. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Dr. James Hudnett Boimer was with us from Vanderbilt University in the first segment. And then Chris Sunkson out in San Clemente, California chatting about Indispensable Church, uh, his latest work. So uh, we're always pleased when you join us. Uh, I want you to check out my latest book. It's just out. It's called uh, The Reluctant Leader, The Reluctant Leader, uh, about why people so often are reluctant to step up and lead when opportunities present themselves. We dive into that topic. Uh, Go up to Amazon, a wonderful way to order books. Uh, the Reluctant Leader. Well, folks, have a good week ahead, and we're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And stay tuned all day long to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You'll be better for it. We'll see you next weekend. So long.